0: You're listening to What Do Scientists Do? It's a show where I talk to a different guest each episode, and they teach us all about their favorite science topics. My name is Jessica, and today I'm joined by Ian, a particle physicist who teaches us all about everything from the teeniest, tiniest things in the universe to some of the biggest things. Hello, everybody. Welcome to What Do Scientists Do. My name is Jessica, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Could you give us your name and your pronouns, please?
1: Yes, my name is Ian. My pronouns are he, him.
0: Nice to meet you Ian. And what kind of scientist are you?
1: I am a particle physicist.
0: What is that?
1: So a physicist in general is someone who tries to describe nature using math. So it's a really broad field. Uh, it can be, you know, on very big scales. There are astrophysicists who look at, you know, planets and stars and figure out how they move and why they form. There are sort of everyday physicists who look at, you know, why why does it feel like you're being pushed to the side when your car turns, or, you know, why does a figure skater go faster when she pulls her arms in? Um, but I am a particle physicist, which is the smallest scale. So if you zoom in to teeny tiny scales far beyond what you can see, so even smaller than anything you can see with a microscope, uh, you see that the, the universe is built of these things we call particles. They're like little building blocks that we use to make up everything else that we see. And I study uh, all the particles that we know about and looking for some that we, we think should exist, but we don't know exist for sure. And I study how they interact with each other.
0: That's super cool. So you mentioned that lots of these are too small to be seen with a microscope. If we can't look at them with really powerful microscopes, then how do we know they're there?
1: So there's a couple of different ways we can see uh, their effects. So if we have a particle bump into something that we can see, it might, you know, produce a little bit of light or it might move something, it'll create a little bit of energy. So we can see their effects sort of after the fact or uh, and what i do is i'm a high energy experimental particle physicist so we build these really really big uh, experiments where we accelerate little particles to you know the fastest speeds we can on earth and we smash them together and then what that does is it makes a big mess and we see that mess as energy in what we call detectors and these detectors are just fancy pieces of technology which are used to measure energy in various ways and we see You know, it makes this big spray of energy when we collide these particles and we can see, you know, certain particles behave certain ways. And that's how we can figure out what particles we made and what particles we started with and et cetera, et cetera.
0: So this might have a really complicated answer. I'm not sure. I don't know much about particle physics. How do you get them going that fast?
1: Uh, So it's a combination of things. So we start with uh, hydrogen, which is uh, the smallest atom. So atoms are sort of the, the building blocks of, you know, people and matter and everything you see around you is all made of atoms. Uh, atoms are actually made up of smaller particles, but we can talk about that in a bit. But basically, we take hydrogen, which is a gas, and we take off its electrons. So normally, hydrogen is made up of a proton, which is a bigger particle, and then a little electron that goes buzzing around it. We take off the electrons, and that means the Hydrogen is now charged. And then there's an interesting quirk of charged particles where if you put them in a magnetic field, so if you take a big strong magnet and you put it next to a charged particle, it'll bend. So it's moving straight. It'll start to turn. And so what we do is we take a stream of this hydrogen, which is charged, and we put it in these huge magnets, the strongest magnets that are on Earth right now. And uh, it starts to bend them and push them forward. And it, we basically send them around a big ring over and over again until they pick up more and more speed. And eventually, at some point, they're going you know, a fraction or a very large fraction of the speed of light. And the speed of light is sort of the fastest thing in the universe, um, the fastest known speed. Nothing can go faster than it. So these particles are going very, very close to that speed. And it's basically just uh, magnets in a ring. and we circle them over and over again.
0: Wow, that's very cool. What is that whole thing called?
1: So the whole apparatus is called a particle accelerator. Uh, I work with um, Atlas, which is one of the experiments on the Large Hadron Collider. So the LHC Large Hadron Collider is the world's largest particle accelerator. It's based in Switzerland and it's actually so big that it has to sit on the border of Switzerland and France. So it's too big to be all within one country uh, because of where it is. So it's this huge ring, which we use to accelerate these particles. And then it has four main experiments on it. And I work for one of them, which is called ATLAS. It's the the largest experiment there. It's actually uh, the world's largest scientific experiment on Earth. So we get, you know, it's this, this fun contrast where we, I work for, you know, the world's biggest experiment to study the world's smallest stuff. Uh, but you just need these ginormous pieces of equipment to, A, get the particles up to that amount of energy and then also be able to see the mess you make. So the the ring itself is actually two rings because we send one particle in one direction and one particle in the opposite direction. So that when they meet in the middle, they you know are going at each other instead of in the same direction and they can collide and spray us with a mess. That's
0: really cool. How big is it? Do you know?
1: Uh, it's a 27 kilometer ring. So the the ring around is 27 kilometers. And then my experiment that I work for is, it's like a big cylinder. So it's like a big can. Uh, and the, the diameter of the circle part of the can is 25 meters. So it's like 25 meters tall. And then it's about 40 meters uh, wide. So very, very big.
0: Yeah, so even just like if this was a water slide for particles, which is how I'm imagining it, um, the water slide when you go into it would be 25 meters tall. So that's like a quarter of a soccer field by like 40 meters, which is like almost half the soccer field. So even just the tube part is massive.
1: The tube itself is a lot smaller. Um, Okay. I mean it's still very big for accelerating these particles. The The ring itself is probably a meter wide. I haven't actually seen it in person yet. Uh, I'm hoping too soon, but it's about a meter tall, the ring. So the tube is a meter tall, even though the particles are teeny tiny. But then when we collide them together, there's like four places where we actually smash them together. And those are the four experiments. And the one I work for is at one of the places where we collide them. And that's what's 25 meters tall, and 40 meters wide. That's still
0: really cool, though. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a m- massive, massive experiment. That must have taken a lot of like cooperation to put together something that huge that crosses like the borders of multiple countries, too. Um, do you yeah. know how many people have worked on it overall?
1: Uh, overall, no. I know that my experiment employs over 3,000 scientists, and that includes many, many physicists, but also people from different disciplines. So we have, you know, engineers who help build things and we have technologists and all sorts of other stuff. So working for Atlas, there's about 3000 scientists and they're from many, many countries. So I think there's over a hundred different countries which contribute various people and parts to um, the experiment. And then that's only one of the experiments. There's four of them and they all work together on this the Large Hadron Collider, which is part of CERN, so CERN is sort of the house of the experiment and the uh, accelerator, and it's this huge international collaboration. So people from all over the place—Russia, uh, China, Chile, the United States, Canada—you know, just as an example—they all come together and work on a common goal, and it's actually a really, it's a really nice, you know, collaborative international effort to get this thing going because no one country could do it by themselves.
0: Yeah, it's, that's some really cool teamwork going on. Um, What are you what is your specific role in all of
1: this? So my role is currently changing. Uh, I just started my PhD. So I'm going to be moving on to some new research. But when I was working on my master's, uh, we were using the data we collect to look for dark matter. So dark matter is this sort of big mystery in the universe. It's not as scary as the name might sound. Uh, dark matter is matter that we, when we look out in the universe, we see that there should be more stuff than what we can see from stars and galaxies and things like that. Um, there should be more stuff because the way, you know, gravity is the, the force that keeps us on the earth and it keeps the earth going around the sun. And so we we're very confident in our ability to measure things using gravity. And so we see that if we measure things with gravity, it looks like there's a lot more stuff than if we just measure things using light. So if we look out into the sky and we look at a, a galaxy, for instance, we see a lot of light coming from it from all the stars. But then when we try and measure you know, properties of this galaxy using gravity, it looks like there's more than just what we can see. So there's some matter in the universe that doesn't uh, interact with light, we say, uh, so that means it doesn't reflect light and it doesn't produce light, so it's not you know a star or something like that. And so we call it dark. And so dark matter is this big mystery because we we're pretty sure it's there. We can see its effect. We know it's interacting gravitationally, but we have no clue what it is right now. so there's a lot of there's been a lot of work uh, to try and uh, constrain what it means so To constrain is like to reduce the possibilities of what dark matter could be. So that could be, you know, how fast can it be moving and how heavy can it be? And there's been a lot of work to try and figure out sort of reduce the range of those options. But we still don't really know what it is. And so for my master's, what we were doing is we were looking at particle collisions that may have produced dark matter. So if you take two regular particles, you smash them together you might produce dark matter. And then because of the way it works, you don't see dark matter in your detectors, but if it decays into other things, so this is where things get a little complicated. So detectors are very useful for looking at charged particles because of what I explained when charged particles and magnetic fields uh, are next to each other, there's the effect of the charged particles curving and various things like that. So if the dark dark matter, which can't have a charge, and that's because anything with a charge will interact with light. So if the dark matter we produce decays into something that does have a charge, we might be able to see the decay in our detectors. So we're looking for a collision that produces something we initially can't see, and then produces something that we can see, and sort of that, the. The missing component there is what we're trying to figure out. Is that dark matter or is it something else that we just don't know? And so for my master's, we were looking at a version of dark matter that would have a very particular decay so that it would be very easy to find in our data. Um, and that's sort of important because the way most particle physics experiments work is that you collect a lot of data and then you analyze it with a goal in mind. So a normal Science experiment is you come up with your hypothesis, I think this, and then you go out and you take measurements that would support that, and then you look at your data and say, is my hypothesis right? But a particle physics experiment is really expensive. So you can't make a new one every time you have a new hypothesis. So what you do is you make something that's very general. You collect a lot of data, and then you go at it with different hypotheses and see, does the data support this hypothesis? Does it support this hypothesis? And so that's that's the way my field works at least, which is a little bit backwards. And so we are going in with this hypothesis of some version of dark matter, and we're looking to see whether it's there. And we, we actually haven't finished the analysis, so we don't know yet. We could find it, we might not. Uh, it would be very exciting if we did. But yeah, so that's what I was working on.
0: That's very cool. Do you know how long it would take you to know if you found it?
1: Um, yeah, I guess the, the problem there is even if we think we found it, it's really hard to claim uh, that you've actually discovered it. And part of that is, like I said at the beginning, these things are too small to be seen. So you can't actually you know, go with a microscope and say, oh, yeah, there it is. We found a dark matter particle. We, can, we know what it looks like now. So what we would say is, if we found some sort of evidence for it, that means uh, there's you know, evidence to support our theory. We would try and refine our theory, make it more uh, strict, and say, like, what are the, the parameters of our theory? So what are the options? How heavy can the dark matter be? And you know, what are the ways it can interact with other matter? And you try and reduce those possibilities and you look at the data again and again and again until you get more and more evidence that supports your theory and then eventually when you have a lot of evidence and very little uncertainty so uncertainty comes in a couple different ways but usually it's basically how well it's how sure are you of your measurement so if you reduce your uncertainty and you collected a lot of evidence then you can say okay maybe we found dark matter but if we found it initially in my in the work I was doing, we wouldn't go out and claim that right away. We would say, okay, we've found some sort of evidence. Let's keep looking in this direction. And if we don't find it, that's not the end of the world either. It just means that, okay, maybe this isn't the way to look and we'll look for something else.
0: Do you think that we're going to figure out what dark matter is in the next 20 years, 50 years, 100 years?
1: Um, I think we're definitely getting closer. There are, you know, tons of scientific efforts to try and figure this out, And it's not just my experiment. There are many, many, many experiments all over the world trying to figure out this question. So it's very likely i I would say within the next hundred years for sure is my guess, which is a sort of a safe as bet as I can make. Um, I would assume it's probably less than that, but You never know. In science, sometimes these mysteries just take forever to figure out. It's already been, you know, more than 90 years since we first discovered the initial evidence that led us to believe that dark matter exists. So there's been it's been a long time, but hopefully as more and more people work on it, it will get closer to figuring it out.
0: Why is it important to figure out this kind of stuff?
1: That is a very good question. So. At the end of the day, if you know if my work discovers dark matter, it really has no impact on you or me in our everyday life. But it is one of sort of the big questions of our universe. you know, this dark matter, uh, we think there's a lot more of it than our regular matter. So it's actually a huge fraction of the universe that we just don't know what it is. Um, and answering the question of what is it is, you know it's important in a sort of uh, you know, philosophical sense. So it's, it's, a, it's a good question to ask and it's a good answer to have, but day to day, it's not gonna change anything. But on the way to discovery, particle physics is usually something that produces a lot of offshoot benefits. So what that means is, you know, as we build more experiments and we refine our techniques to, you know, search for things, we develop a lot of technology and a lot of skills that are really useful in other places. So I'll give an example. Um, cern like i said is the home of my experiment and it has been producing these particle accelerators for many years and one of the offshoot benefits was um, a version of a cancer therapy so they use basically a mini particle accelerator that you shoot at ca- cancer patients and it helps uh, get rid of tumors and it's something that would never have come along if we hadn't just been looking for particles out in the universe uh, so it's it's really hard to say what the benefits are going to be in the future, but it's almost guaranteed that there will be some benefit to us in our society from looking. and then having the answer in the end may also prove really useful to other theories and may eventually actually be useful to us if we can you know maybe we can figure out a way to harness dark matter for energy and it'll solve the energy crisis or something like that. It's impossible to say right now, but it's I think it's still important to look.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the far off predictions sound like sci-fi. It's so hard to know like what you could do with that information. Like time travel, I don't know, you know. Um, but it's still very, very cool and seems to have lots of benefits in the process. Oh yes. Is there one thing that you think everyone should know about particle physics?
1: I think uh what I would want everyone to know is that there's still a lot that we don't know. So some of the biggest unanswered questions about our universe are still unanswered and you know it's it's a matter of time until they hopefully get answered but along the way we're going to need people who are curious and interested and eager to dive into these really really big questions and I think you know it's it's easy to look at something like particle physics which has made you know tremendous progress in the past you know couple decades and think, okay, we're all done there. We know all the particles. Let's move on. But there's actually these huge unanswered questions that we still need people to try and address. And you know, I think it's a, it's a fun and exciting field if you can get into it. And you know, we're always looking for new people.
0: Super cool. So it definitely sounds like the kind of field for people who um, want to know all the details. Like you just keep looking. Um, closer and closer and closer until you um, end up as a particle physicist who um, wants to know the exact details of what's going on, which then gets you back to the scale of the universe somehow at the same time, which is very cool. Um, it's like you're doing the smallest things and the biggest things all at once in a way. Super cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ian. Um, this was really fun and very cool.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a great time.
0: And as always, a big, big thank you to everybody listening. For more science fun, past episodes, and other information, you can visit bit.ly forward slash what do scientists do, or you can follow us at scientistsdopod on Twitter or Instagram. Do you have a question that you'd like answered by a scientist? Send us an email or a voice recording at whatdo scientists do at superstaff.ca or message us on social media. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Bye for now. This show is made by Supernova at Dalhousie University, a network member of Actua. For more information on our summer camps, workshops, and more, visit supernova.dal.ca.